let's jump right in. We're in Acts chapter 12 uh, through 15. We got a big chunk of scripture today, and I know we've already kind of had a, um, about an hour service already, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to read all this scripture. Please go back and read it for yourself. There are a lot of great things going on uh, to teach us, help it to inspire us, help it to shape us, to be the people that you called us to be. And as we face our challenges here, this day, in our lives, God, as your people have faced challenges in every generation, let us face these challenges with faith in a way that shines light upon you, that shines light upon Jesus. And God, give us that courage. Give us that faith. Uh, give us that awareness of you working every day and in every way, God, um, through all that we go through. Bless this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, what's going on in Acts? Well, we see that God is pushing the good news of the gospel, of the inclusion of all people into the Lord's kingdom. And he's taking it from Jerusalem, where this great event happened, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where his Holy Spirit is poured out. But it's not just going to be for the Jews. It's not just going to be in Jerusalem. It's not just going to be at the temple, but it's going to go out to all the world. And here we're in the thick of it. About a decade or so after Jesus has already died, as he's raised from the dead, as he's ascended into heaven, here we have the Apostle Paul, who has been called by God. He's out in the missionary journeys. There's opposition going on to the word. Uh, there's great things happening. People are becoming believers. It, there's so much activity going on uh, here in the middle of the book of Acts. Um, there's a lot of uh, opposition we're getting, that the, the gospel is getting, that the preachers of the gospel, that Peter and, and Paul and Barnabas and Silas, they're getting uh, one from the Roman emperors, uh, from the pressure of, hey, you say Jesus is king, the emperor is king. That's a no-no. People are being jailed for that and eventually going to be killed for that. Uh, they're getting a lot of opposition from just the Greek world and the, the worship of the deities from Zeus and Athena and this, just, that, just that opposition from the Greek world. Um, and they're also getting some of the, the, the hardest opposition from the Jews themselves that are really, instead of just worshiping God and seeing what God is doing, they're worshiping Torah and trying to just put a fence around the law, around Torah, around the oral tradition. And, and they don't want to see and don't want to accept that God has made this gospel, this, uh, this good news of inclusion in the Lord's people for all, for all of mankind. And it's been very hard for them. Um, as we look to chapter 13, 14 and 15. Um, here we see the Apostle Paul going out on his first missionary journeys. Let's skip ahead of here a little bit. You'll see this map. He's going to start out in Antioch. He and Silas are going to go. They're going to pick up John Mark along the way, and it will be introduced to him. And so you're going to have to read through this yourself. And they're going to spend three years on this first journey that they've been sent out on. And so they're going to go to these to Cyprus first. And he's going to, we're going to see, um, one of the first conversions that Saul, and he's about to become Paul, will have, and it's going to be a very influential person there in, in Cyprus. 
Then they're going to travel up to Perga. They're going to go up to Antioch. And that's a different Antioch. Some of us get confused. This is Pisidian Antioch. There were several Antiochs around. And so we have to, we get confused sometimes with the names. Hopefully this map will kind of show you and make, make a delineation from the Antioch over by Syria to the Antioch and Pisidia. And they're going to travel to Iconium and to Lystra and to Derby, And then they're going to start making their way back. They're going to start backtracking. Um, the common theme is they're going to go to the synagogue. They're going to preach the Jews. They're going to get some pushback uh, eventually, but not, in, not initially. A lot of, they want to hear what they have to say. A lot of Jews will come to faith. Um, and a lot of Gentiles will come to faith. But then there's always some opposition that arises, usually sparked out of jealousy. They have big crowds coming. It's disruptive to the, uh, to the Greek culture, a lot of things. So they keep having to run for their lives. But then they kind of backtrack and encourage the people, appoint elders, and make their way eventually back to Antioch. So this is a three-year journey that they take. And I want to look at one thing here. Uh, I think it's very interesting here in Acts 13. Uh, while they're in Cyprus, they, come, um, they meet some interesting characters. Verse 6. They travel through the whole island um, until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. That's interesting, a Jewish sorcerer <laughs> um, and a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, as the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, uh, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately a mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Um, so here, uh, we see this very influential man become uh, a believer, become a Christian. And he's, Sergius Paulus, a proconsul. So this is this is a big deal where maybe maybe it's kind of like a, a regional governor, but a lot of people believe it's got an imperial rank. So maybe he's like the secretary of state in the whole empire. So this is a very influential person who becomes a believer. And what you'll see in this story is right in the middle of this that that Saul is going to change his name to what? He's going to change it to Paul. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, maybe, as we see, this is one of the first people that the Apostle Paul really helps to become a believer, is this influential person. Maybe that inspired Saul to change his name to Paul, because who's the guy's name? Sergius Paulus. I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things there. Um, but uh, I thought that's very interesting but this, this guy, this, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, think about the humility. Think about the humility that he must have, this great leader, to listen to this apostle. He, say, he sought him out. And um, he, when he saw the true power of God, 
So what an amazing conversion. And, uh, and I don't care who you are. I don't care uh, how much power you have. If you're the president or you're a king or whatever you are, when you see the power of God, it's humbling. And uh, I hope that um, really inspires us to think about uh, so many people that are influential throughout the world that, uh, that God is reaching them as well. God is reaching out to them as well. Uh, let's continue on here uh, for time's sake here. And, and we'll see, you know, the, 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 uh, the missionary journey is, and they get back to Antioch. And, um, but when they get back to Antioch here in, in chapter 15, they're going to address the, the crucial point of tension in the first century church. And that's the inclusion of the Gentiles uh, with the Jews. And, um, and it's really coming to a head. And, they, and they, they send some people down to Jerusalem to talk about this. Let's look, read what it says. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. And this is in Jerusalem. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Um, I'm sure if you're a Gentile in Ephesus or in Lystra or Derby, and, and you became a Christian and, and you, if you got the word that, Hey, you want to be a Christian, you must get circumcised. Uh, that might dissuade you just a little bit <laughs> from, from making that decision. Uh, this was, a, this would have been a very um, big commitment to make. And of course, being a Christian is a big commitment to make, but is this necessarily what God is doing? What Paul and what others and Peter and uh, eventually what's going to be clear to everyone is going to say is that, no, this is not a requirement to become Jewish, to be a follower of Jesus. So you see what happens here. The apostles and the elders that's in Jerusalem, they met to consider the question. We see a great example here, a great principle set of how we can come to this, this um, agreement together. Uh, in the church. And they had a lot of discussion. And Peter, one of the apostles, he got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, Listen to me. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And he goes on. And they come to this agreement, and, and they feel really good about this. And the Holy Spirit's working through this. Now, you may have some questions about this. Why did they decide this? Uh, okay, we're good. We don't have to require 
circumcision, uh, these types of things. But, okay, these three things they decided to, uh, food polluted by idols, sexual morality, and the meat of strangled animals. What's the deal with the meat of strangled animals from blood? Well, um, it seems that what James is doing, and who is this James? This is James traditionally seen as James, the brother of Jesus, or a kinsman of Jesus, could have been a cousin or something like that. There's a lot of different uh, stances on that. And, um, and he is really the, the main leader in Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem church. And he's dealing with a, a Jewish church. It is not a Gentile church. It is mainly a Jewish, Jewish church. And he knows he can't keep the Gentiles to hold the law of Moses from the Mosaic covenant. But what he's doing, from what I've studied and learned, he is holding them to the covenant given to all of creation in the time of Noah. Look at this in Genesis chapter 9. Look at the covenant God made with Noah. And this is what James is doing. We can't hold them by to the the, the covenant of of. Moses, but let, we can hold them to the covenant of Noah. So we'll do that. And everybody's gonna be happy about that. So, so it really did help even with the Jews. And that's what we see in this covenant. This is what God is saying to Noah after the flood, when he's reestablishing the covenant, you must not eat the meat that has life blood still in it. You see that covenant? So James is saying, we can still hold them to that covenant. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal for every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Um, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. And as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So, so the council saying, okay, of course, there's no idolatry allowed. Yes, uh, there's sexual purity. Here is, you see that in the covenant as well. And we're going to hold to this, uh, this covenant of not eating meat with a life but blood in it, this, this sanctity of all creation. So if you've had some questions about that in the past, I know I certainly have. But that seems to be what James is doing. And, and they're not being held to the standard of the Mosaic covenant, but to the covenant given to Moab. I hope that makes a little sense. So we're learning some things here. Uh, but we're going to get to some hard things here now as we continue on. Um, Let's look back in chapter 12. Okay, and we're going to finish out here today uh, in chapter 12. But this amazing story, this crazy, amazing story of Peter's miraculous escape, escape from prison, because it's hard right now. Uh, King Herod is in charge. And who is King Herod? And I, I challenge anyone here in the church in Wilmington or wherever you are to, to make sense of all the Herods that are out there. I tried to learn. <laughs> this is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great died uh, right around the time, right after Jesus was born. Uh, and he had all different types of children, had all these different types of wives. And, and uh, he even married a Cleopatra, Cleopatra of Jerusalem and all these different children and grandchildren. Okay. This Herod, is usually agreed to be Herod Agrippa, known as Herod or Agrippa I. He was king of Judea, 41 to 44 AD, and he was the last ruler of the royal line uh, reigning over Judea and the father of Herod Agrippa II, uh, last king of the Herodian dynasty. So he's the grandson of Herod the Great and the son of Aristobulus IV. Anyway, I'm telling you, this, this family tree is crazy. But anyway, 
if you get confused about all the Herods and all the Agrippas, join the club. But this is not Herod the Great. Just know that this is uh, going to be his grandson who is a ruler at this time. All right. So just a side note there. Let's go back. If you're confused about the Herods, so am I. Okay. But the night before this Herod, uh, wait a minute. I skipped ahead. I skipped way ahead. Wait a minute. I'm going forwards. Bam. Here we go. Uh, it was this time King Herod arrested some of them who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James. Now, this is a different James. This is James, son of Zebedee. Remember the James and John, the two brothers? So James, son of Zebedee, was put to death. So he is martyred. He is killed. And Peter is also put into prison. Uh, this happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded uh, by four squads of four soldiers each. I mean, he is under maximum security. Herod intended to bring him out to public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. So Peter knows that he's about to die. He is, he's only reason he's not being killed right now is the, is the festival of unleavened bread. And, and, and they can't do that. But as soon as this festival is over, he's going to be put to death. Um, so Peter is there just say, okay, it's my time. Here we go. Um, and the church is just distraught. They are, they are fearful. They are praying. They are praying so much fervently for Peter and they're mourning. They're mourning for James. They feel threatened. They're wondering if they're next and they gather together and they pray. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, verse 6, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at their entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision because he's seen visions before. We on top of Simon the Tanner's house, right? Remember that? They passed the first gate and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And <laughs> check this out. This is such, this story is crazy. It is really funny. Listen to this. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed and she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. It's kind of like what my kids do when somebody comes to the door. They never answer it. They just, they just run around and wait for us to go answer it. Um, poor Peter's out there trying to get in. But, but they're in there praying for Peter. And here's what they tell Rhoda. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, oh, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, 
And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to get quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, again, that's uh, James, uh, kinsman of of Jesus, uh, leader in uh, Jerusalem. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered they be executed. So these guards were killed because of this. This was a serious business. So, so one, there's, there's this miracle happening, and, and Peter's on death row. He's on death row. He, he's, he's, he's going to be executed. And he's rescued miraculously from, from death, and he's given another chance. And, and uh, I think we just think there for a moment, I mean, um, some of us maybe have faced that before, where we feel like, hey, we're at death's door or, or something. We're given another chance, another chance at life. You know, maybe we've been through some kind of accident, some kind of cancer, some kind of something, and uh, where you feel like you're, you're, you think you're going to die and God's given us another chance. And, and um, you know, Peter's really going to continue to dedicate his life to, to following God and, and being a servant of God. And, and, and what do we do when you have those life awakening moments uh, when you're given bonus time? Uh, Peter's given that and, and, and he devotes his life in, a, in an extra special way to to serving the Lord. Uh, God kept him alive for a purpose. He, he wasn't done with Peter yet. And if you've had that type of moment, I mean, God's got something special uh, in store that he wants us to continue to do. Um, but I think the point that I think will be encourage us the most is, is seeing that while the church, yes, even though they're apostles, um, friends and family, they had faith. They had faith to do what? They had faith to pray for Peter. But really in their minds, none of them were thinking that Peter was going to be saved. <laughs> they, they couldn't even believe it. Even when someone, he's there, they, they didn't want to believe it. They couldn't believe it. He must be his angel. He must have already died. And, and where they had the faith to pray, I don't, it doesn't seem they really had the faith that God could really do it, that God could really save Peter. Um, sometimes I get haunted by the scripture in James, which says, remember that scripture when it says, when you pray for wisdom, you, you, you shouldn't doubt at all. Uh, Cause if you doubt, you know, it's just a really bad thing. And you're like an unbeliever. And, and um, you know, but there he's saying when you're praying for God to grant you wisdom and for God to, and that, that's one thing, but I, I think we shouldn't doubt about that. God should, will give us wisdom when we ask. He's generous with wisdom. But when it comes to the practical things, like what they're facing, is God going to save Peter? Is God going to bring healing here? Is God going to be with me in this situation, that situation? We pray about it, but also we can be so pessimistic and so negative, um, not believing it's really going to happen. Uh, uh, maybe you're that way. I, I remember our first, uh, uh, when we were purchasing a house in Georgia, and we found this incredible deal. And it was the, the dream house. And it, the, the market had, had crashed. So we were able to buy this house or at least put an offer on it that was just like we had no business getting it. And like, you know, in my mind, I was like, there's no way. We prayed about it, but it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And finally, they did accept the offer. We got the house. I was just pinching myself thinking, 
is this really happening? Did we really get this house? It just took me a couple of weeks to accept that God gave us this gift. Um, I had the faith to, to pray about it and even act on it, but it still was hard for me to believe. Um, uh, my dad, who just shared about, about the offering, uh, last year we were, we were all praying fervently for, for dad. He was in, in the hospital and, and uh, really had a few close calls. Uh, the doctors weren't giving him very long to live. Uh, giving him a couple of months. Uh, our family was kind of getting prepared for that. Mom was getting prepared for that. And uh, we were all praying for him. But to tell you the truth, you know, I was, I was trying to get ready for, for him to go be with the Lord. And I had no idea how God was going to pull him through this and give him health. And, and uh, God did. <laughs> he did it. He, he's, he's bigger than my faith. He's bigger than my faith. Yes, I had hope. Yes, I prayed. But I did, I, there were times I really doubted that that was going to happen. Um, this really speaks to us a lot. I mean, these guys were surprised and astonished that Peter was rescued. Um, what is it in your life that you're hoping God will do? That you're hoping God is attentive with, but you still have a lot of doubts about um, you're going to have doubts because you're human. Don't feel guilty for doubts. But the biggest thing for us to learn is they had the faith to do what? To pray. They had the faith to pray. And brothers and sisters, that's the point. Like right now, I have no idea how this coronavirus thing is going to pan out. Nobody does. It's, it's, it's unique. It's a challenge that we've never faced in this way. Now we've faced a lot of different diseases throughout humanity, but the globalization of this, and it's a unique challenge. It is. Um, None of us know how this is going to go, but you know what we can do? We can have the faith to pray. We can have the faith to pray. Um, God is at work. He'll give us awareness and he'll answer prayers and we'll look back and say, how did he do that? I don't know how he did. It was a miracle, but he did it. But I don't understand how it's going to work out. I don't understand how my job's going to work out. I don't understand how God's going to take care of me through this, how God's going to take care of our church through this, how God's going to take care of my family through this. But I have the faith to pray. I have the faith to trust. That's all the faith we really need. Um. We need to pray. Jesus, Jesus, give us a parable about this. In Luke 18, Jesus says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town. You know this parable, right? He kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice for my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice and she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will he not, and will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see they get justice and quickly. However, will the son of man, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? He says, just keep going to God. Just keep asking God. Just 
keep gathering together and pray. You don't have to see how it's going to happen. You can even doubt that it's going to happen. You can doubt how it's going to happen, but don't doubt God. Don't doubt him. Pray to him. Are we praying? Are we gathering to pray? We are so worried. We are so knotted up inside. If we just would pray, if we just would pray, eventually we're going to get some knock at the door and it's going to be hard for us to believe, but it's going to be the answered prayers in God's own way, according to his will, that will be miraculous. That will be God taking care of us, his people. Will Jesus find this type of faith in us? Church, let's pray. Let's pray individually. Let's pray together. Let's never, ever stop praying. I hope this encourages us today. Um, and uh, God is at work. Let's never doubt that, guys. I love you guys. I, I hate that we can't be together to uh, give big hugs and to see each other in this way. But uh, we know that God is at work and doing some special things. I can't wait to see uh, all that he is doing uh, within us and around us.